My name is Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is Process Driven. Brooke Shaden is one of a select few artists who manages to consistently create work that is so visceral and resonates so deeply that it makes me want to step into the picture so I can inhabit that world, even for a moment. Her work is sometimes haunting, sometimes dark, sometimes even disturbing, but it's always interesting and challenging enough, both conceptually and technically, that I've been a fan of hers for years, and I'm always eager to see what she comes up with next. I've wanted to talk to her for a long time, and I'm so grateful that we could finally make this happen. Here's my conversation with Brooke Shaden. Please listen carefully. When I look at your body of work, I mean, obviously, there is such a massive amount of, of imagination that drives your work, but there's an equal amount, I think, of technical skill. And I, I wonder, with, like, with such a wild imagination, have you ever come up with a concept that was, for whatever reason, even beyond your capability? And if not, where, where do you find challenge in making your work? Oh my gosh. I, uh, I struggle to, to do what I do every week. And I think that if you're not struggling, then you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like there's not a lot of growth happening. If you just be sort of punch them out and you know, exactly the formula, it, I mean, then it, it, it's just a formula. It's clinical. So yeah, every week I come up with some idea that I think I have no idea how to pull this off. And then I experiment. I mean, I experiment all the time with my work. And in fact, I'm like about what, 40 minutes before we started talking, I was literally hanging from a piece of fabric from a tree branch <laughs> that I tied up. And just like, I was, I was just hanging in this stack of fabric oh that was God. like slowly ripping from the bottom and thinking what, I don't even know what this is. Like, what am I doing right now? But that's the whole point of doing it, isn't it? Not yeah, knowing yeah. exactly. And then you just do it anyway. And to me, especially with social media and especially with this ability to transmit information, not just the finished picture or the finished product, but the making of like those experiences are valuable on so many different levels. Sure. Personally, for the adventure, for other people to see that you're just out there making a fool of yourself and that's fun and that's funny and that's great. And then, you know, even if nothing comes of it, at least the story's there. So mm -hmm. for me, it's like every day is just this process of, I have an idea. I don't know how to do it. So maybe I'll just hang myself from a tree and see what happens. Right, know? right, 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 right. Well, and I think it's important. I mean, you, you, you just hit on something. I think it's so important to see how much joy is in making your work, because I think there may be, and I don't know this for sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think there may be a tendency for people to assume one thing or another about you based on the tone of the work. Absolutely. I, it's the number one comment that I get when I meet people in person. They always really? say, you're so much happier than I thought you'd be <laughs> that. And like, you're so much shorter than I thought you'd be, right, but, right. you know, it's, it's always the number one comment that I get that I've always gotten. And I love it. Like I, it brings me the most immense sort of twisted, sick joy. Yeah. When right. I get to show people that like, I wear my hair in braids and bows in my hair and right. like, I, I'm just like really happy and I giggle a lot. And, and it just watching people try to reconcile that when the 
artist doesn't match their art is right. hilarious yeah. to me. How, so how does awesome. this come out of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but, you know, it's, it's like the perfect platform to talk about how we're really multifaceted. Every right. human has all these different sides. And just because I present in a certain way doesn't mean that I don't also have a fascination with death and darkness and all this stuff. But you know, it doesn't have to be the thing that runs my life to be the biggest curiosity of my life. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a great point. It's funny. We, I actually thought of you over the weekend. Well, not over the weekend. When we were in Richmond, we were mm. on our way to uh, a cemetery there called Hollywood Cemetery, which is a, a, you know, a beautiful cemetery as cemeteries go. But yeah. there was a little shop uh, called Rest in Pieces in Richmond. Huh. It's like a little curiosity oddities shop with taxidermy and bones and insects. And, and I mean, it's just this fascinating shop. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I know who would love this shop. And, <laughs> and you know, there's a there's a, a human skeleton in a in a coffin. But, you know, the head is missing for some reason. And that begs the question, like, how do you have all of this thing except the head? Right. Uh, you know, there's another one in the back and, and, oh, and there's, there's a, apparently there's a law on the books that you, you cannot buy or sell human remains in Virginia, but these were apparently gifted to the store owner, which is perfectly acceptable. Ha, that's fantastic. Right. You know, oh man, I would get such a trip out of that place because like, just like you said, you can't sell human remains, but like what, you can sell other remains? Right, <laughs> I mean, right, so right. Weird. Yeah. And any number of taxidermied creatures are there for your, you know, amusement and enjoyment, but right. hands off the human skeleton, right? <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it was so cool. In fact, I, 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 I'm hoping we're going to make this happen to, to have a conversation with the owner uh, about the oh, shop yeah. because I, I look at a shop like that and I go, okay, what's the, is the fascination with the occult side? Is the fascination with the taxidermy side? Are they somehow mixed? Or is there something else that I'm completely missing that inspired you to open a shop like this? Yeah, I want to ask that same question. So let me know when you ask them, because (laughs) (laughs) I have my own answers of, you know, why I love dead things and why I create dark art. But when I see other people do it, I, I have the same reaction to them that people have to me, which is like, what made you do this? Right. Like, of right. all the things, what is it? Yeah. There's a series that you've done, and I, I don't remember the name of the series. It's a, a series of three circular pieces that I yes. absolutely love. Thank um, you. Absolutely love them. I think that and Begin Again might be my favorite bodies of work that you've done. And I don't know why that is, but they especially begin again. It resonates so deeply with me for some reason. And I, I can't tell you why, Um, but every piece in that, in that series is, is really, really lovely. And then to watch you do sort of the behind the scenes of it with um, the, the beetle kind of on, it was it in a pair of tweezers it looked like. Yeah. With Photoshop as such a sort of ubiquitous tool now, I think there's an, a, an assumption, and, and there probably even was on my part, that you just found a stock image somewhere or photographed a beetle or, or whatever it was and then composited in. But taking that extra step of, of being present with the actual thing, I think adds something to the work that you wouldn't get just pasting it in. Absolutely. And it's for me, it's the whole reason for doing it. It, Mm -hmm. I want that experience, especially because I found with photography in particular, that when I do a photo shoot, I retain the physical memory of what it felt like to be there in that moment. So moving forward, if I just used a stock image, 
I would never have a memory of that photo. Like it just wouldn't stick with me for, for any reason, even if it turned out looking exactly the same. So being able to feel what it felt like to sit in my garage and hold a beetle up to my face and then like drop the beetle and scream as it looked like it was skittering across the room, even though it was very much dead. You know, that's like, that's, it for me. That's why I'm doing it because I want that moment where I feel uncomfortable and I love feeling uncomfortable. Like if I'm good at anything, it's that I am so ready to embrace being uncomfortable. And so that's why I'm like, you know, out there doing weird stuff for my art because I I don't know why let someone else photograph that beetle if I could do it and possibly, you know, have nightmares that night, but like, it's worth it, you know, for, for having done it. Well, I mean, now that you mentioned nightmares. I mean, that's something that I've been reading because I I love doing the research and and thank you for having so much incredible material to to read and look at when I'm doing research. I love the research part of these. Yeah, I really do. So I'm reading about these night terrors. Yeah. Is is there some part of this? And I I mean, I, I think I could guess at an answer, but I'd rather hear it from you. Is there some part of this that's that's therapeutic in facing the fears that appear in the night terrors or is it something else? It's absolutely that. And it always has been that mm-hmm. even when I, even before photography, I went to school for filmmaking and I made really, really dark films about the things that I was afraid of and the things that I had nightmares about. And then when I picked up my camera, it was the same. And I realize now with hindsight that it wasn't just I'm interested in dark things. I think it's cool. I think it's fun. It was, I have always had a massive problem with fear my whole life Hmm. from my earliest, earliest memories. My, my memories are pretty much just me being scared in different scenarios. And I realized that I was using art to take control over those things that I felt out of control with. And I think that's why a lot of people create, Mm -hmm. um, for many reasons, but there's often an underlying feeling of, I want to gain control over something that has felt out of control, whether it's your subject matter, your way of creating, whatever it is. So for me, art is the process of control. And that's largely why I shoot self-portraits and I shoot by myself. And, you know, everything that I do is sort of this psychological, really kind of messed up way of just getting control over every part of my life that I possibly can. And do you find that it helps or does it does it keep the fear at bay at least? Like, how do you quantify whether you're whether it's effective or I guess how effective it is? I don't know that it's actually worked to banish any fear or Mm -hmm. even to change my attitude toward it. But I know that the feeling that I get when I, for example, look at that picture with beetles on my face, I feel a sense of triumph and I feel a sense that. I was brave and I had courage and that feeling that just those visual reminders of bravery, I think are worth their weight in gold. So whether Mm -hmm. the fear is still there, I can look at that image and say, I did something courageous. I made that choice and I can make it again. And that's what art is good for. Right. Right. Could you go that one step further in, in using, you know, sort of real live, there's a video out. I don't know if you've seen this. There's a, a song by Billie Eilish where she's got a tarantula coming out of her mouth. And, you know, a lot of the comments were like, oh, it's, it's CG, it's fake. And she posted a a behind the scenes video of like the tarantula wrangler, I guess. I don't know what you'd call them, placing this thing in her mouth. And then she then, you know, sort of opens her mouth and it crawls out. And I, 
I couldn't do that. <laughs> but yeah. I, could you get to that next level of of is that another level of kind of tackling that fear or is that an unnecessary almost indulgence in that way? Well, I'm all about those kinds of indulgences. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. my theory is that at least this is how I feel for myself, that anybody can suspend fear for a short amounts of time. So like if you ask me to, you know, put a beetle in my mouth for 30 seconds, could I do it? Yes. Um, would I do it? That's a whole other story because <laughs> right. I don't believe in using animals in my work right. from a moral standpoint. But um, outside of that, theoretically, would I do it? Yes. Would I look forward to it? Yes, I would. I mean, I live for those moments where I push myself to the edge and knowing that you can come back from it though. You know, right, I think right. that's where I draw the line is like, I'm not going to do something dangerous for the sake of saying I've done it, but if it's a genuine fear and I know that it's a short time, anybody can practice bravery for 30 seconds. Right. Well, and it seems like, you know, kind of you've alluded to it before that you remember the experience or the experience has a deeper effect than the the final product almost. Yes, absolutely. I was just thumbing through uh, this new book that I just put out and I'm looking at all the images in it and it's every single page that I turned to, I was trying to pick out images that I could tell stories about. And every page that I turned to, I was like, Oh, I remember that one. Oh, hmm. I remember this one. Like I, you just know, not just the memory of like, you know, everyone remembers taking pictures, but it's the memory of like, I remember what it felt like to arch my back in that way and which muscles hurt the next day and things right. like that, that are just so physical and so visceral that you can't trade that. That's the point of it. When I look at your work, I'm curious about where the inspiration comes from, because I, I have in my head, I, I, I build these little stories in my head of where these things come from. And I would imagine that not only are, are, you, are you incredibly prolific behind a camera, but you've just finished your first fiction book. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is there more inspiration in your life from the written word as an avid reader and a writer than there is from other visual work? Oh, 1000%. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I am incredibly drawn to the written word m way more so than anything. My first career choice when I was a kid was to be a writer. Mm. And then, and then, you know, reality sets in as they teach you in school that you're never going to make money being a writer. So I thought, well, then I'll be an English teacher. So in my mind, like growing up from probably like eight years old to 17 years old, I thought I was going to be an English teacher. I had wow. no other career plan in my head. I just thought, well, that will get me closer to reading and writing. And, you know, and I, I, I've always had a passion for teaching. So I always thought I would do that. And it's really funny the way that my life turned out, which is really unexpected because um, essentially what happened was. I got praise, like real praise for the first time in my life for a short film that I made. And mm. in my mind, it was like the combination of I really enjoy this, but also I feel validated in it. And so I went in a visual direction, but I still am surprised that I did. And it's been a long time since I've been doing visual work, but I'm still surprised that I ever even bothered with it because I still love writing more and I love reading and I will always get inspiration from that. Do you remember what the first book or short story, whatever it was, that that you really connected with reading? <laughs> yeah, there were a lot, but I think there was um, kind of a turning point when I was in high school. I started reading. I remember reading Brave New World and I really just 
felt so connected to that book for so many different reasons. Um, I read a book by Italo Calvino called uh, Invisible Cities. And that was really interesting to me because it was essentially a, a fictional conversation um, between two historical figures talking about cities that don't actually exist. And it was all sort of an allegory for something else. And I became really obsessed with symbolism hmm. and allegory. And that led me to um, finding the deeper meaning in everything that I read and everything that I saw. I became that really annoying kid in school who was like, I think this is a symbol for this. <laughs> and like, you know, really pretentious about it. Other but kids are just rolling their eyes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like I can picture it now when I think back, but, um, but that has been the greatest, um, inspiration for me, but also the best tool in creativity and in business, because if you can find the deeper meaning in something that you're creating, then you're opening up a door for other people to find that deeper meaning in what you do. Mm -hmm. So, being able to connect to the symbolism in my art, no matter what it is that I'm creating, I, I honestly think that has been the biggest um, open door for me in terms of having a career doing all of this stuff. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating arc. And and again, I you know, I don't know much about your background in terms of your personal life, but mm-hmm. it, from a career standpoint, it seems that you have carved out You've done two things. You've carved out this sort of niche for yourself, but you've also maybe even single-handedly, because I can't think of anybody that's doing what you do the way you do as much as you do. You've kind of created this this market that exists now. And I wonder if there's a, do you feel that? And do you feel a pressure, especially because you kind of alluded to social media earlier, is there mm-hmm. a pressure to release more and more and more because you are are so well respected kind of within the industry now? Well, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Um, I don't I used to feel a ton of pressure and mm-hmm. I'm a very anxious person by nature. So uh, I have really high standards for myself, really high standards for people around me. It's not really very much fun to be my friend, I think, <laughs> overall. But um, but those oh, come standards, on. It, no, no, I, I promise you, I've uh, really like, you know, I can really be judgmental with people. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a flaw. I'm working on it. But um, but in terms of, you know, the work that I make and how I I put it out there, I tend to take the expectations of those around me and put them on myself and really hold myself to those standards. So I went through many, many years, most of my career, where I felt really this terrible struggle between what I want and what they want, and they being anybody who may be looking at my work. And I started to realize not that long ago, maybe just a couple of years ago, that that way of thinking is really just an enormous amount of ego, you know, to say mm-hmm. like, they want something from me. They need my art. And and I just took a step back and said, I don't need to, I don't need to project that ego onto the world. Like that's not how I should be behaving. And not to mention, you know, i I take great pride in trying to pioneer different ways of creating and writing and thinking and putting that out there. And I don't want the way that I'm projecting my persona, my business to be one of desperation and 
you know, people pleasing. I want it to be that I'm creating on my terms when I feel inspired to create and to put the message out that that's enough, that it's okay to do things on your terms. And the people who really care will still be there at the end of the day. So I've taken a very new approach, especially in the last year Mm -hmm. of just making what I want to make, not making when I don't want to make, and then sharing about how that feels when I feel anxious about not creating. What does that feel like when I'm happy that I am? What does that feel like? And I think ultimately it just gives more permission to other people to do the same. But it also, you know, the more you project that confidence in whatever amount of work or type of work you're making, I think that that helps to elevate you in a way in a lot of people's eyes in in saying, you know, this is somebody who isn't beholden to the masses, this who isn't beholden to the they of the Internet. And there's a lot of power in in, you know, releasing that pressure. Well, and it, it becomes more, the making becomes more personal in addition to the end product. We, we get to see, you know, what you're going through at any given moment or what, what you're trying to express at any given moment and then how that comes out on the other side. Yes. And I think that's so important. Um, I was just shooting something the other day. In fact, I was creating one of my circular beetle pictures and I was sharing how I did this photo shoot with this beetle on my bed and it was it, it it was really fun and funny, but then the picture just didn't turn out right. And, you know, I kind of shared a little snippet of the image and kind of said, okay, I'm quitting this. I'm going to start again tomorrow. And a lot of the comments that I got were, but you should just keep it. It's good enough. You know? Mm. And, and I thought that's really interesting because it is good enough. And I agree with them and there's nothing wrong with good enough, but there's so much value in, picking up again the next day and doing it all over and showing people that, you know, it's okay to keep working toward exactly what you want and you don't have to settle for less. Right, 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 right. Go back a little further because it sounds like you started kind of creating exactly what you wanted or or trying to create exactly what you want. Um, And then it changed somewhere along the way and you started thinking more about audience. Do you remember when and where or, or why that started to change for you? Yes. Um, I remember about three specific instances where my attention was put on the audience. And in all three instances, I felt a really deep sense of shame for not considering audience. And hmm. I want to explain that because it's a really weird realization to have especially in art in fine art, especially we are so often the stigma is you to be a real artist. You have to create for yourself. You don't Mm -hmm. consider your audience. You don't consider anyone else's feelings or desires. You just make what you want to make. And there's some sentiment in there that I agree with, which is, you know, if you're, if you're going to be an artist, you might as well make what you want because there's an audience for everything out there. So you might as well get really good at what you love. But on the flip side of that, when I think further, not just about photography or art or, you know, this career that I have, I think about legacy and what do I want to be known for? What do I want to be remembered for? And for me, it's not, it's never the art. It's the way that I made people feel through my art. And when you take that step back and realize that art can be for both parties, it can be for me and for you, and you can consider what other people need, then it's a whole different ball game. So I remember the first time this happened, I put an image out, uh, online and 
I didn't feel like it got enough comments. I was being really selfish about it. It was on Flickr. And I just said, this is just, you know, I think this is a failure. People aren't commenting, people aren't responding. So I deleted it. And this was just a few months into having started, you know, creating imagery. And, um, my friend texted me the, the next week. And she said, I was looking for that picture that you shared and I can't find it. And I said, well, I deleted it because nobody liked it. And then she went on to tell me that she had just had a really traumatic experience. And this image was the first thing that made her feel connected again. And I felt like such an idiot for deleting that image because people didn't like it. And I, and that was the first time out of many, many times that I would come to realize that my art serves other people, but they do not have to tell me how it serves them. And they don't have any obligation to write me a comment and say that they like something that I do. And a lot of times I think the people who are touched the deepest, they're the people who aren't ready to write that comment publicly or to even, you know, write personally. So I've had a lot of experiences like that since then of people saying, you know, I was contemplating suicide, but then I saw your images and I felt connected or, you know, I was thinking about running away from home, but now I'm not going to, because I feel this really deeply and just things like that, that, you know, you have those moments time and time again. And And this idea gets really drilled in that my art can be for me and it can also be for other people. And I can serve myself and I can serve other people. And the more we embrace that, I think the deeper our art will get. I don't think it becomes more shallow because you consider audience. It becomes deeper because of it. I completely agree. There's the myth of the tormented artist, right? Yes. That that you have to to suffer sort of disproportionately to you know, whatever it is. And, and it drives me bananas mm-hmm. because it doesn't square with making a living as an artist as almost celebrity. Yeah. You know, there, th- how, how can I be one and, and also the other? I mean, maybe they can be true, but I just, I don't buy the idea that you have to be, you know, in some sort of deep existential cave to produce good art. I, I just, I don't think that's true. I hope it's not no, true. No, I don't either. It's I am glad that you touched on this because it is probably my biggest pet peeve in the art world. And this is why I love showing people that I'm actually a very happy person because I don't want to perpetuate that idea that you have to be tortured to make dark art or any art. I mean, I make the best art when I am happiest in my life. And mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of power in spreading the word that You can go through bad things, but the power of art is understanding. It's, it's getting some distance from it and analyzing it and sifting it through the, the lens of, you know, how you're going to recreate that feeling that ultimately leads to healing or understanding. And the more we promote that as an idea, rather than you have to be depressed to make art, I think the healthier artists will be and the wealthier artists will be, which is wonderful. Mm Mm-hmm. The creation process itself is hard enough without also saddling yourself with, you know, I, I have to be suffering beyond, you know, the, the, the creating in, in and of itself in order to make this work. Yes. Um, can we talk a little bit about workshops and sharing and, and connecting yeah. in that way? Because that seems like another aspect of your career that seems to have come out of nowhere. Maybe it was planned, but as an audience member, it seems like you are able to connect in person even deeper than you are with people just looking at your work. 
Yeah, definitely. That's been a shock to me because I have really bad social anxiety. Do you really? Oh yeah. Terrible (laughs) social anxiety. Um, but for me, it comes back to control because, you know, I think back like in, in school, I remember in eighth grade, we, we all had to give a a talk, a five minute talk. And this was this big, massive thing that was, everyone was leading up to in eighth grade. And I remember doing mine and I was one of the only people that failed the talk because I just couldn't fill those five Mm. minutes. I was so petrified. And, um, all throughout my, my sort of adolescence, the idea of talking to a group was the most mortifying thing I could think of. And I'm sure lots of people identify with that. And even now, the thought of going to a party or meeting someone that I don't know, having a conversation face to face just sets my pulse racing. And really? I, I, oh yeah, I hate it. I, I, I won't really do it for the most part, but what I've found is that for me, really my whole career goes back to control because if I feel like I'm in control and people are there to listen to what I have to say, then I'm like the queen of the room. You know, like I can, I can command an audience and I can say what I want and I'm super confident. Um, and for me, it's just all about the context of the interaction. So, you know, I've, I've taught private workshops, one-on-one big workshops. I've hosted my own convention. I run retreats. I do mentoring. Like for me, I've really expanded the way that I can interact with people as long as it's on my terms. And mm. as long as I under, we both understand the terms of this agreement, you know, <laughs> right, right. we're not sitting sign here to accept. Together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I'm going to hold a microphone and that's how this is going to go. Right. Right. And then I feel really wonderful about it. So when you come off of something like a like a creative live, for example, where there's mm-hmm. there's not just an audience, but there's all sort of technical people and, and you're, you're being looked at as kind of the center of attention for this. When you come away from that experience, do you need time to sort of I need to be by myself and regroup and sort of recharge or are you good to go? It's a, it depends really. Um, because I'm not uncomfortable being the center of attention and I'm not uncomfortable projecting and teaching and, you know, sort of putting all of my energy into that. For me, it's more so just how uncomfortable did I feel? Mm. So if I feel like I'm in control, then I'm good to go. I remember, in fact, you brought up Creative Live when I taught my first Creative Live class. um, We had, I think, six or seven audience members there. And when we finished filming at 4 p.m. every day, I would take that group of students out to dinner every night and we would go shooting every evening and talk until late in the night. And we did that every day for a full week, pretty much. And so for me, it's not like, okay, I've taught something. Now I have to go be by myself. It's like, how can I just keep holding on to that sense of control and like keep giving back to people as much as I can? And I think I've even found a lot of my self-worth in that. And not in an unhealthy way, in a in a really good way, in the sense of, you know, I know myself well enough to know how I can give to people in the most efficient and non-taxing way possible. So I'm going to do it when I can. Hmm. I, I don't know that I'm the opposite, but after this, I, w- I will need some time to just sort of decompress. I will need some time to just l- let it go and I'll reflect on it later. And if I'm doing you know, a, a group discussion or a panel or, or, you know, when we used to do photo walks, remember when you used to be able to go out in the world and do photo walks, yeah. <laughs> you know, I would need to, to sort of sequester myself a little bit away and, and sort of refuel. 
because it yeah. takes an extraordinary amount of energy for me to be on, quote unquote. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And that's how I feel in a in a personal situation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go to these like conferences and stuff where, um, you know, you, you're not forced to go to parties, but essentially, you know, I'm at these conferences and different people, brands, maybe, you know, say, meet me here at this place. And, and I end up in these situations where I almost always have a panic attack in, in, really? uh, in these situations, almost always. I wow. remember very specifically the last one I was at before, you know, pre pandemic, I went into this massive dinner that a company was having. And it was like, I knew maybe one person who wasn't there yet. There were about 60 people seated at this massive table. And I went in and I sat down and I looked around and I just couldn't breathe. And I ran out of that restaurant and just Mm. sat on the sidewalk in New York city, just hyperventilating and decided to just walk away. I just left. I was like, you know, I'm not even going to say anything to anybody. I'm I'm not going to pretend I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. That's happened a million times to me where I'm, you know, in an elevator, the doors open, I see the party. I just close the doors (laughs) and go right back up. Nope. And, um, (laughs) So I fully understand and appreciate what you're saying because, you know, I don't do well in most situations, truly. Mm -hmm. How helpful is, and I was so happy to see this, I can't even tell you, uh, in a video, I I don't remember even what video it was, but I noticed uh, you've got a a tattoo, Fear is the Mind Killer. Yes. And I was like, oh, I know what that's from. I know what that's (laughs) from. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, Dune was a massive influence on me as same. a teenager. And, yeah, and since then, I've read it like three or four times through now. And um, it is always it's like my guiding light. You know, I go back to that book all the time and take the principles from it all the time and try really hard, really actively to apply it to my life, which is why I'm always like in that elevator opening the door to a party to be like, well, maybe today's the day that right. I go to a party. Right. But, um, but you know, the thing about the quote fear is the mind killer is that the, it, I think it's a little bit two-sided there. There are fears that are very much worth overcoming because they inhibit the life that you want to live. And then there are fears that kind of live on the periphery, like me and my social anxiety, where I don't want to live that life. Like I have mm-hmm. no desire to be that person that's social and that goes out and, and talks to people. So I would rather build my life around what I want it to be than some social ideal of how I should be. Right. So for me, that quote isn't, isn't really about like tackle everything that you're afraid of. It's tackle the things that stop you from living how you want to live. Has has that been hard to reconcile as as you get more kind of well known and and expected to be sort of out in the scene as it were is is it hard to reconcile that with with professional and personal life? No, actually it's become a lot easier. Um hmm. I find myself just growing in confidence that I can skip a dinner. I can say no to a party. I can say no to a brand in general. I can say no to whatever. And I've grown in confidence that those decisions will open up other opportunities and that's okay. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, you know, I used to live in fear of it. Like, well, if I don't show up at this party, then, you know, this person isn't going to want to hire me for this job. Right. If I I say no to Sony, then Panasonic's not going to ask or whatever it is. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, I just don't, I don't buy it anymore. I just Mm. tell people right off the bat. And in fact, I, um, I've done this for a lot of the people that I have partnerships with where 
right when we start talking, I'll say, listen, you may expect this of me, but let me recalibrate your expectations because this <laughs> won't happen. And we have a lot of conversations. Oh my God. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> because there, there is this perception by an enormous group of photographers that being the ambassador or the the you know whatever the, the global brand blah 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 that's the peak right right that's the pinnacle that they're trying to get to and and they'll do whatever it takes to have that yeah. on their instagram profile or their website or whatever it is yeah and it is so incredibly refreshing to hear you say look i'll i'll, I'll play this game but i need to do it this way are you still in yeah exactly and i wish that more people would do that because i actually think that it it uh, sort of asserts some level of control, some level of self-respect mm -hmm. in the situation. Um, you know, brands and companies, they're all used to people saying, I'll do whatever you want. Right. But they're not as used to people saying, well, I'm in, but these few expectations have to be met or I'm not willing to do this. And um, but artists have a lot of you know, leeway with stuff like that. And the more that I have asserted myself and the things I'm willing to do or not do, I feel I've gotten way more respect from being able to have those conversations and mm. then have my boundaries respected. There's mm -hmm. so much mutual respect. That's uh, terrific. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I think that, that it is, it is unhealthy in, in those instances just to say yes, because in, it, it comes off as a as a desperation. It comes off as as a position of of releasing power to that other entity. And it sounds like you know you trying to really sort of explore control and retaining and maintaining and asserting control is such a healthy space, not only for you to be, but it's healthy for artists to be. Period. Full stop. Yes, I completely agree. There's. There are so many ways that artists have their control taken away from them. So many ways, whether it's in pricing your work and people putting you down or, you know, bad interactions with clients. But there has to be a way for us artists to maintain some modicum of control. And the more we learn to assert it, which it is, it's very much a practice. It's not like I just woke up one day and was like, I'm just going to tell these companies how it is. You know, it was a very gradual thing, right. but the, the big lesson from it was every time I chose to make those decisions in a very kind and respectful way. I mean, I'm not like going to people and saying, I refuse, like yeah, right. I only want green M&Ms, you know, like that's not too much. I'm, I'm saying from a place of respect, th this is where I'm comfortable. This right. is how I would like the relationship to be. And hands down, consistently, without fail, those relationships have been stronger and, and more respectful ever since then. So wow. I just grow in confidence every time. Mm -hmm. Does that spread from one partner to another? I mean, is there an expectation when a new partner comes to you that they know sort of what to expect? Or do you, do you have to kind of go through the list again with each, each new person or each new company? Yeah, I go through the list with yeah. each person, but yeah. I find that, you know, it's, um, it's such a personal world, the art world. So I tend to get to know just one person first and they know me and they know what I need. And then that may escalate to a partnership of some kind. And so typically I, I, 
I don't know if you, if you're like this, but with social anxiety, like I find one person to just latch onto mm-hmm. and I'm like, let me explain to you and only you everything you need to know about me. And then maybe you could tell everyone else. Right. For me. Right. Right. So I do that a lot. Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, this is why we're doing this this way instead of a panel discussion. I, I much prefer to be locked in to one yes. person that I'm talking to. And it's, it's yes. one of the reasons that I love doing the research. It, it lets me spend time in your world and then have this conversation and kind of let it go wherever it goes. And f- for a long time, I really struggled with, is this, you know, to your point about audience earlier, is this what an audience wants to hear from her or him or whoever mm-hmm. it is that I'm talking to? And it got to a point where very quickly, actually, where I, I just went, look, I don't care what the reputation is. I don't care what the follower count is. I don't care, you know, how big or small you are. I'm just going to approach people that I find interesting and want to learn from and hope that they can see that and want to have a conversation about it. Absolutely. And that leads to the best conversations, therefore the best content, you know, therefore the audience who wants to hear it will find it. Yeah, I hope so. And I think that's in a, in a very similar way. That's why I, I resonate so deeply with your work is because you craft Every single thing on that image, everything, everything is there because you want it to be there and that you've thought about it, I'm sure, over and over and over again. And, and I have this immense respect for effort. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm doing research on, uh, this is going to come out of left field, but I'm doing research on Todd Rundgren because I don't know much about him. And I've been listening to interviews and watching little things. And he said that effort increases value. Yes. And oh, what a thing to say. Is that Absolutely. great? I mean, I, I, it's kind of, I kind of want to get that where your fear is the mind killer tat is on your, on your forum. I kind of want to get that yeah. on me, like effort increases value and it, it may not increase value for the end user. It may not increase value for an audience member. It may not increase value for a viewer, but I think for the artist, for the craftsperson, for the maker, that is absolutely true. Uh, I totally agree. I I read a lot of um, project pitches and artist statements and stuff like that. And the thing that I find that's missing most often is just this feeling that like they can't not think of everything. You know, Mm -hmm. I want an artist to be so obsessed with the world that they're building that they have to sit there and brainstorm every little detail about it. And that kind of specificity is often lost because we're so desperate to get our work out faster and faster and more of it that those details get lost. And even in my work, I'm, I think, I think the thing that I am saddest about in my whole career is that I have given into creating a lot of work very fast, not that it wasn't meaningful and that I didn't love it. And that it, it doesn't you know mean something to me and others, but I, I really sort of lost my way of hmm. looking at all the details and trying as hard as I could and putting that effort in. Um, but that's something that I've recognized and now I'm remedying because I do think that the greatest value an artist can bring is their best effort, their fullest effort to something, because that's what most people will not do. Right. Right. How do you see your work being different, slowing down? How do you see it changing if you, uh, allow it more room to breathe and and don't, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're rushing things out, but if you do give it more time, how do you see it changing? Well, I'm trying to be more, like I like to say, oniony with my work. Like I wanted to have more layers and mm-hmm. 
deeper meanings. And so for my journey has very much been, I started out photography and I made an image almost every single day and released it the same day. And I did that for a long time. It was a monumental effort to make that much work, but the images were very simple. It was me and a white wall and some texture and, you know, not a lot else going on. So my journey has been about not just slowing down for the sake of slowing down, but letting ideas really ruminate for a very long time before I act on them. And this, uh, my, my latest series that I'm putting out in, in January is, um, very much a product of that, where I had an idea in my mind, this was in 2016, I had the idea and didn't feel like I was ready for it. Technically, conceptually, I just felt like I needed more time. And it was the first time that I thought that. And I thought, I remember thinking, wow, that's, that's real growth to recognize that I'm not ready for this idea instead of just rushing through it. And then I started shooting it in 2017. And then I scrapped everything that I shot in 2017 and 2018. And then I restarted the series based on, um, sort of revelations that I had about how, not how it should look, but how I wanted it to look, not how it should feel, but how I wanted it to feel. And the result has been that, you know, the series has been in the works essentially for five years. And I've decided to make it my first mixed media series my first series really diving into the grotesque and dark art. And, um, and so the result will be a whole show of about 35 pieces that are all mixed media, acrylic, dirt, bone, sand, sculptural pieces, um, interactive art experiences. And, um, and that's really special for me because eventually you're going to grow out of yourself, you know, eventually that, that shoe that you put on when you started photography is doesn't fit anymore. It falls apart. And, and I've got to that point where it was falling apart, where it, mm. what I was doing became old and it became predictable. And I want to surprise myself. Right. You did a picture and, and I, I want to get to the, to, to the mixed media stuff because I loved seeing you unsure of how it was going to turn out as you're dragging red paint across this beautiful print. Yes. <laughs> I loved that. I loved seeing that. You did a picture, and it must have been a couple years ago now that I remember, where you were covered in butterflies, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, know if, I don't know if you were painted or you painted on the surface of that photograph. Do you remember which one I'm talking about? I do, and, and I know which one you're talking about. It's, is it more close up? Yeah, it's, from what I remember, it's, it's like maybe, you know, belly button to, yeah. you know, top of your head. And yeah, there's a exactly. lot of texture and, on your skin. Yes. And I know exactly what you're talking about because it is my favorite self-portrait that I've ever made still. And, um, and yeah, I painted my skin for, for that image. So was that the beginning of the sort of rumblings or murmurings of, of including paint? Cause there, there's something different about that image that really stands out for me. And I love it. You have no idea how much it, it, I'm so happy to hear that because it's always been my favorite and I can, I can never pinpoint exactly what it is of why it feels different, but it does. Hmm. And 
actually, I can really draw kind of a through line to mixed media from my very, very first images where I really wanted to put a lot of texture into the images. And then that texture started to transform into, well, I don't just want texture on the wall or just overlaid on the image. What if I carefully select fabrics that have different textures that, you know, go against what my skin looks like or what the background looks like. And I started to put texture into every single element in the image so that it felt just really, um, tactile. And then I started painting my skin for different images like that one. And I started to notice that, you know, I can make it look like a painting without actually painting on it. And that was, that was a big turning point for me. But then it was actually in, um, 2020 last year where I painted, a piece of glass. Mm-hmm. I was painting on glass and then I photographed that and I overlaid that onto an image of me. And I remember making those images and thinking, wow, like this is where I need to go. This is so exciting. I loved this. And I had sent it to one of my galleries and, and she thought that I did paint on top of the print. Wow. So she was like, this is amazing. You have <laughs> do, to do more, more of this. this. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I said, okay, great. You know? And then she wrote back and she was like, wait, you didn't actually paint on the print. And she was like, wait, you got to paint on the print. What are you doing? <laughs> And so I thought, well, okay, I'll try it. And so I got a print and I painted on it and I had no idea what I was doing. And then I realized though, once I got it right, you know, in in my mind, what I thought was right, I realized that it's just adding something different, something new and unexpected. It's making it original instead of an additioned print. And, and I felt like that's where I needed to go. And in a sense, it makes perfect sense because I, I've never liked photography like right. ever. I've right. never enjoyed it really as a medium. So uh, why not actually do the thing that you want to do? But for me and probably for most people, it's, you know, I don't know how to work with my hands. I don't know how to paint. I don't know how to draw. I can't do that because, you know, the the reason is because you've really never given it a fair shot before. But um, the narrative that you tell yourself is you must just be bad at it because you weren't good at it the first time. Right. So I've been trying to reverse that narrative and just try new things. And then, you know, equally, I've been painting on my prints all week. And, and there are times where I'll get a glob of paint somewhere and it's and my first reaction is that's wrong. And then I, <laughs> I just take a step back and I'm like, you know what? maybe I'll just make that my thing, right? You know, like maybe right. I'll just put globby paint on it. And who's to say that that's not right. And I've been really embracing that lately. It's, and it's, it's so, I mean, I, I remember seeing the video that, that when you were painting and you were very clear, like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. I, I have never done this, but here we go. Yeah, that was my first time. Yeah. And it was so great to see that because I, as a, as a painter, yeah. I have done zero paintings that have turned out exactly the way I thought they would. Zero. Yeah. Paint has That's a weird way of, yeah, it has a weird way of doing whatever it wants, even to the point of like, I mix a color and for some reason it blends with something else and it's slightly different than what I had. Even something that uh-huh. simple, but you have to let it be what it wants to be. Yeah. And that's been a huge lesson for me because we've talked about the need for control several times now. And this has been the opposite of that. It's like, okay, try to let go of some of that need for control and recognize again, it's just like, you know, having that beginner mindset, like this is all just guesswork. This is all just experimentation. And it should be because I think the further into your career you get, the, the less you're seemingly allowed to embrace that 
uh, mindset. People mm-hmm. have expectations of you. You have an audience, you know, people are paying you for a specific thing. So how are you going to go back to not knowing what you're doing and starting right. over? Right. And my, I mean, you brought up my series begin again, which was really, um, came from this mantra that I had for myself, which was don't be afraid to begin again all the time, every day. Don't be afraid to begin again. And that's what I'm now taking into my mixed media work and all of that is just, it's okay to not know. And it's okay to be a beginner. And I, cause I, especially cause I think half of being a professional is just being confident. And so why not take my confidence that I've learned and earned into what I'm doing now and then just rebuild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that the end result, the unpredictability of the end result will lead you necessarily lead you somewhere unexpected because you, yes. you, you may be in control of, of the photographic portion of that work. But as mm-hmm. we saw in the video and, and you see it every day when you pick up a brush it doesn't go where you think it's going to go or want it to go, but you have to kind of embrace that glob of paint and go, all right, this is what it is. Yes. Yes. And, uh, I, I just recently, I've, I've been starting to paint on this new series, Samsara that I'm doing, and I just messed up my first print. So I I managed to get through five prints without anything going too wrong that Hmm. I couldn't work with it. And then, and then something went so wrong that I just set it aside and thought, well, I'll just print another one and try again. But I've been just yesterday, I just got really inspired to just pick it back up and say, it's okay if this is going to go in the trash, but what can I do to salvage this? Yeah. Let me work this a little more. Yeah. And it reminds me of, um, when I was little, my, my dad would always come into my bedroom and I had a chalkboard on my wall And every single night he would say, draw a line. And I would just draw any line, like a straight line, a squiggly line, anything. And he would take that line and turn it into a whole drawing before I went to bed. And really the point of it is like, you know, it it doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you take it. And I'm trying to embrace that now with this work. It's like, you know, I had an idea in my mind, but maybe it's meant to be something else. Hmm. Is there a line in terms of are are there projects that you might do for you, but won't show publicly or do you feel a responsibility to release everything that you kind of embark on doing? You know, I've just, I, I don't know. I've never really thought about that before. Actually. I, I don't, I don't think I've ever felt like I need to make something, but I don't want to share it to me. It's just, I think that there's such a symbiotic relationship from me to the audience that mm-hmm it just makes sense to share it. I'm not trying to hide anything. There's nothing that I'm too afraid to put out there, whether it's controversial or not. It it just doesn't occur to me, I think. Um, And in fact, it it makes me feel brave. So I don't think that, I mean, at least so far, there's nothing that I can think of that would push me in that direction to not share it. But Um, but it does excite me to go deeper and into the themes that I explore. For example, um, next week I begin shooting my new series, um, that will come after Samsara, which is my painted series. Um, and this new series is much more specific, much more personal, um, very sort of, uh, 
a, a much greater departure for me than anything that I've ever done. Um, it's called broken threads hmm. and it's all about our ability to love without ownership, which is a very weird idea. And, you know, there's not like a lot of people talking about this, but since I became a foster mother, I've been thinking about how so many people um, are for very valid reasons, unwilling to give their love unless there's a sense of attachment and ownership to the thing that they're giving it to, sure. whether that's by having children adopted or biological, whether that's through marriage and having a piece of paper that binds you. Um, there's, there's just this hesitancy to love without permanency, without ownership. And so my new body of work is going to essentially make a commentary on that through photographs, through mixed media pieces. But, um, I, and I find it's, I know it's going to be a big visual departure from what I've ever done. And I'm just excited. I feel like I am past due to just shake everyone up and, um, and, and make everyone uncomfortable and watch people leave. Like, I'm not afraid of that. I am looking forward to that. Subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything in your favorite podcast app to get process-driven, along with everything else I release all in one feed. Support the show and help others find it by leaving a review or a rating wherever you listen and by sharing it on social media. If you'd like to take a deep dive into Brooke's work, visit her website at brookshaden.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-E-S-H-A-D-E-N.com. She's just released a brand new book called Reflection, Exploration of Self, which you can purchase on her website or through Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And if you'd like to learn how she creates her incredible work, she's produced a number of online classes on creating fine art images, compositing, and turning concepts into productions. And you'll find a list of those on her website. Connect with her on Instagram, at Brooke Shaden. Connect with me on Twitter and Instagram, at Jeffrey Sidoris, that's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S, or on my website at jeffreysidoris.com. I also produce a bi-weekly newsletter called Create and Release. You can find it on my website or by visiting createandrelease.work. That's going to do it for this episode of Process Driven. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you on the next one.